You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture readings this afternoon. Last week we read from 1 Corinthians 5. This week we'll continue with 1 Corinthians 6. If any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now to Titus chapter 2. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, 
Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This afternoon we are considering the truths of God's Word as they have been summarized in Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit to be His image, so that with our whole life, We may show ourselves thankful to God for His benefits, and He may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent way of life? Walk of life, rather? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis begins his memorable book, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader from the Chronicles of Narnia in a way that really grabs you. He says, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. Later in the book, the intolerable Eustace Clarence Scrub was changed into a hideous and ferocious dragon. 
And one might think that such a boy would enjoy his new identity as a dragon. And he did, at first. But in time, he came to hate it. C.S. Lewis writes, It was very dreary being a dragon. He hated the huge bat-like wings, the saw-edged ridge on his back, and the cruel curved claws. One day a lion came to Eustace, the dragon, and told him to follow. The lion, I think many of you know his name, Aslan, brought the dragon to a clear pool of water. Eustace wanted to go in right away, but Aslan told him to stop and told him that first he had to undress. This sounded strange. At first he didn't know what that meant. He wasn't wearing any clothes. But then he remembered that he was a reptile-like dragon. And dragons as everybody knows, can shed their skins. So he started scratching and scratching. And eventually, sure enough, his skin peeled off. But as he he looked into the water and as he saw his reflection there, he looked no different than before. So he tried two more times, scratching and scratching, and the skin would peel off. But in the end... The result was no different. He was still an ugly dragon. And finally, the lion spoke. You will have to let me undress you. Eustace later on was telling his friends about this and he reported what happened and this is what he said. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And afterwards, Eustace jumped into the pool and as he looked at his arms, he realized that he turned into a boy again. But the story didn't stop there, for after Eustace got out of the water, Aslan, the lion, dressed him again. Dressed him in new clothes. It's a great story. If you think about it, doesn't that beautifully echo what Christ does for us? Christ is the one who saves us from a hideous destiny one that's far worse than than being a dragon. Christ is the one who strips off the old clothes. He washes us and He dresses us with new clothes. From beginning to end, Jesus Christ is our Savior. With Lord's Day 32, we've come to the third part of the Hatterberg Catechism. And that part has the title over it, Our Thankfulness. And we might be tempted to think that this is going to be all about us. In the first section of the Catechism, we, we heard about how we had messed up. 
We heard about our sin and misery. And then the second part, we heard the good news of how God has redeemed us, how God has brought salvation through Jesus Christ. And now with the third section, we get to do our part, which means showing our thankfulness. But you know, if we're thinking this way, the catechism stops us right in our tracks. Well, sure, the first question wants to pull us in that direction, in that man-centered direction. We're saved by grace alone through Christ, then why must we do good works? I want to talk about me. But the answer begins not with us, not with me, but with Christ. Notice those two words, because Christ. I'm very thankful for our our book of praise and the way it's typeset here because those words are right at the very top and they stand alone. Because Christ. He is first and foremost here. Makes you think of those two other great words in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God. In the first verses of Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are dead in sins and trespasses. By nature, children of wrath. And then in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Likewise, here in the Catechism, we don't take the initiative. Christ does. He is first and foremost. His grace extends to our entire salvation. And what a rich and full salvation it is that we have in Him. That's going to be our theme this afternoon as we consider this Lord's Day. And we'll look at, first of all, how He redeems us with His blood. And then second of all, we'll also consider how He renews us with His Spirit. Well, up till this Lord's Day, the Catechism has been primarily concerned with that first point, our redemption through Christ's blood. After establishing that we are in fact sinners who deserve temporal and eternal punishment, we're reminded, we're told from the Scriptures that there is a way of escape. It's through a mediator and deliverer who is true and righteous man and at the same time true God. We confess that all those will be saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all His benefits. Starting with Lord's Day 7, we're reminded of all that is promised us in the Gospel by way of the Apostles' Creed. From front to back, the Creed is about what the triune God does. The Creed is entirely Gospel. Then in Lord's Day 23, we learn that justification is by faith alone, and that it too is entirely grounded in the work of Christ. Following that, we looked at how faith is created by the preaching of the Word, how it's strengthened both by the preaching of the Word and also by the sacraments. And then last week we considered the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we noted that these two are about our redemption. The preaching brings us into our redemption. And church discipline 
It guards us in our redemption. So when the Catechism says here that Christ has redeemed us by His blood, this is nothing new. But just because it's familiar doesn't mean that we can pass it over. In fact, an important part of the ministry of the Word is to repeat glorious yet familiar truths. Last week we noted how Christ during His ministry, how He often repeated Himself. He reminded His followers of what was important. Well, one of those followers was the Apostle Peter. And he learned well from his Master. In 1 Peter 1.12 we read, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Paul said the same in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. The Lord Jesus, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, they reminded their listeners and readers of things they already knew. They repeated themselves because they knew that this was what was needed. And so, when the Catechism does that here again, we ought not to grumble. We ought not to look down our noses at the Catechism. But instead, be thankful. It's always good, isn't it, for us to be reminded of the Gospel. And we find that beautiful good news announced in in what we read from 1 Corinthians 6. Right now, I just want to focus on the last two verses of that chapter. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Just as a quick aside, that would be a great passage to memorize this week. It's a very important passage to have written on our hearts. Note the kind of language that Paul is using here. It's a building, a temple, what Peter calls a spiritual house. Let's take that image of a a building. Let's take that image a step back. Because before God's work, what was there? Well, there was no temple. Instead, there was a pile of ugly rubble. But guess what? God bought the rubble. You were bought at a price. What was the price? Well, according to 1 Peter 1.19, it was the precious blood of Christ. In Acts 20.28, Paul told the Ephesian elders, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. If you reflect on that, loved ones, that's a humbling thought. You were rubble, a heap of lifeless stones, dead in sins and trespasses. There was nothing, absolutely nothing in you to make God love you or desire you. Quite the opposite, really. But yet, you were bought with the 
price of the blood of the Son of God. God gave His own Son for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. It's truly amazing. Now, Titus 2.14 gives us the same truth in different words. Speaking about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That the Holy One through whom all things were created would give Himself for me, for you, for us. Wow. It's too much. Can it be really true? It is. It really is. And because it was bought at such a high price, we have a rich salvation in Christ. And then is it any wonder that the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down before the Lamb in Revelation 5 and they sing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ has redeemed us with His blood. Now we say that, but do we really know what that means? We know what He has purchased or redeemed us with. It was with His precious blood. But I don't know if we often ask the next question and give it some serious thought. From what? R.C. Sproul often tells of how he encounters street evangelists who will go up to him on the street. Maybe we don't have that around here, but I guess in, in the United States that happens more often. People come up to him and say, are you saved? And he always replies, saved from what? And he says that most people can't give him a clear answer. And similarly, we should ask, redeemed from what? Well, Peter gives us the beginning of the answer in 1 Peter 1.18 when he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Redeemed from the empty way of life. Titus 2.14, which we just mentioned a moment ago, says about Jesus Christ that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Galatians 3.13 brings us closer to the answer still when it says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The empty way of life, wickedness, was under the curse of the law. But a curse is something personal. Inanimate objects do not curse. Uh, a rock cannot curse somebody. Persons curse. So with the law, who is doing the cursing? The one who wrote the law. God. We are redeemed by Christ from the curse of God which rests upon the empty way of life, which rests upon wickedness. 
And that's exactly what we read in Romans 5, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Saved from what? Redeemed from what? From the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Wrath that we deserve. Only the blood of Jesus could turn away that wrath. Only the blood of Jesus could pay the price. Believe in Him and you will be saved. That's not a message that plays well today. It never has. The Gospel is always offensive. It's offensive because it tells us the truth of who we are and who God really is, what He's like. It's offensive because it tells us the way things really are. That there is only hope through the blood of Jesus Christ offered on the cross. We need to be constantly fixated on Him as He is revealed in His Word. Not according to our own imaginations or our own ideas, but according to the way that He is revealed in His Word. And if we don't do that, the end result will be how theologian H. Richard Niebuhr described Protestant liberalism. Listen carefully. He said, he described it as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. That kind of good news is a lie. And it will not save us. And it will not change hearts. It will not change lives. The Catechism gets it right. It reminds us of how rich we are. Christ has delivered us from God's curse on sin with His blood. Loved ones, that's a truth that can transform lives. And that's what we're going to look at now in our second point. Well, answer 86 continues by telling us that the same Christ who redeemed us by His blood also renews us by His Holy Spirit to be His image. There are two different things in view here. We've just been speaking about, when we speak about the redemption through Christ's blood, that's referring to our justification. When we speak about the renewal through Christ's Spirit, here we're talking about our sanctification. Sanctification is about the process. That means it's something that's ongoing. The process of renewal in our lives where we're being made over into somebody new, somebody who looks like Jesus Christ. That's what's in view in, in Titus 2.14 when it speaks about Christ being the one who purifies for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Now the Catechism says that this is done by the Holy Spirit. Well, we might take that a, a step further and ask how. How does the Holy Spirit do this work of renewal? Well, He works through means, through an instrument, through a, a tool. 
And that tool is the Word of God. According to Ephesians 6.17, the Scriptures are the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Holy Spirit. And that means that not only does the Bible come from the Holy Spirit, that it's inspired by Him, but also that it's the weapon, it is the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish God's purposes. The Word. I want to go back to the beginning, to the introduction with Aslan. The Word is like the claws of Aslan, stripping us of our old clothes and dressing us with new clothes. Christ renews us by His Spirit, working through the Word. But to what end? What's the purpose? Well, the Catechism gives us a threefold purpose. The first and most important has to do with God. That we may show our thankfulness to Him and so that He will be praised by us. Here again, we can think of what we read from 1 Corinthians 6. Remember, the the image there at the end of that chapter is of a building. We noted that God bought the building materials. Even though those materials were a mess, a pile of rubble, well, God took those materials and He built something out of them. What did He build? Well, He built a temple. And what is the purpose of a temple? It's a building meant for sacrifices. But because Christ has been sacrificed once and for all for our sins, the sacrifices offered with this new temple, they can't have anything to do with atoning for sin, paying for sin. There's only one sacrifice left in the New Testament. There's only one sacrifice left for the temples of the New Testament. And that's the sacrifice of thankfulness. And so New Testament temples exist for expressing thankfulness, praise, and love to God. The God who saved us. Our bodies, in fact, not not just our, our bodies, but our whole life belongs to God and is dedicated to His service. And so Paul says, this conclusion at the end of verse 20, Therefore, honor God with your body. So the first purpose has to do with God. The second has to do with ourselves. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. When Christ renews us with His Spirit and we do good works, we will become certain, more certain, of our faith. Now the Catechism uses that interesting word, uh, fruits. And when you hear that word fruits, you can't help but think of a tree. Look around us right now at this time of year, you see many trees with, with fruit on them. Well, here Christ is the tree. And we are grafted into this tree by faith. And because His sap is flowing through our branches, fruit is going to emerge. And when we see that fruit, we know for sure that we have been, in fact, grafted into this tree. 
Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Fruit is the proof of our grafting into Christ by faith. Now we come to the third purpose. That by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. In other words, Christ will work through our godly walk of life to draw others to Himself. People will look at our lives and say, wow, I want that. Renewing us by His Holy Spirit will be His way of redeeming others with His blood. And we see this in Titus too, when Paul gives a series of exhortations to the young minister Titus. He tells him to instruct the older women to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Why? So that no one will malign. Literally it says they're blaspheme. So that no one will blaspheme the Word of God. Paul is interested. He wants to see behavior which does not provoke a negative response towards God among those who do not believe. And then he turns this a slightly different way in verse 10 when he's writing about how Titus should instruct the slaves. They're to be subject to their masters and and so on, not to steal from them. Why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Christ wants to use His renewal in our lives to draw others to Himself. Now, it's true, the Catechism speaks about us winning our neighbors for Christ. But if we draw that out, we know that we are only instruments in His hand. Ultimately, it's all His doing. Part of His rich salvation for us and for others too. Now, given all that, we come to a different question. Can those really be saved who don't turn to God from an ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? Well, let's first parse out that question, be clear about what's being asked. The word ungrateful, I think we're clear on that. It means somebody who's thankless, unthankful. Impenitent, though, perhaps is not so clear. Impenitent simply means unrepentant. It means that a person just doesn't care about the way that they're living. They never have any second thoughts about anything they say, they think, or they do. They just go on living a sinful life, never confessing their sins to God, never seeking His forgiveness through Christ, It's also captured with the words walk of life. This is about a pattern, a way of life, something that characterizes somebody. The answer is emphatic. Can such a person be saved? By no means. 
And then follows a paraphrase of a number of Scripture passages, including the one we read from 1 Corinthians 6. People who live in sin, who have a sinful way of life and never repent, never turn to Christ, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be mistaken. That means that they will not be saved from the wrath of God. That's a serious warning. It needs to be considered carefully. If we are living a sinful life, that's what characterizes us. The implication is that we have not really believed in Christ. This goes back to the image of the vine and the branches. We're grafted into the vine, into Christ by faith. And if that graft has really taken, then fruit will inevitably follow. And if there is no fruit, the logical conclusion is that the graft has not taken. There is no faith in Christ. Now listen carefully. That's why living in sin is not a matter, first of all, of all the externals of lifestyle. As if people just need to hear more about what they have to do. Read them the riot act. Living in sin, loved ones, is a matter of unbelief. Of not believing in Jesus Christ. They need to hear and believe the gospel. And the fruit of a believing lifestyle will follow in due time. Hebrews 12.14 tells us, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And then it's these words, without holiness no one will see the Lord. Without holiness no one will see the Lord. Loved ones, holiness begins not with us but with Christ. Begins with faith in Christ. Being grafted into the Holy One. And that grafting, that operation, it opens our eyes and ears to hear His Word so that when the Word tells us that we should live in a certain way, we say, yeah, well, that's what I do. I'm a Christian eager to follow it. Our union with Christ makes our hearts soft and pliable and impressionable so that the Scriptures become Christ's tool to make us increasingly holy. Now, that's what happened in the church at Corinth. There were problems in that church and we noted those last week. After Paul gives that list of the types of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he then adds, and that is what some of you were. But, there's that but again. I love the way Paul uses those buts. But, they were transformed. Note that they did not transform themselves. All of these things were done to them by God 
washed, sanctified, justified. They were united to Christ by the Spirit working faith in them. And this is what changed their lives so that they were no longer sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunks, slanders, and swindlers. Faith in Christ, believing the Gospel, is what made all the difference for them. And so it will be with us too. Next week, we're going to go on to Lord's Day 33 and we're going to consider the nature of repentance or conversion. After that, again, we're going to spend a few weeks with the Ten Commandments. And as we do that, let no one be under the impression that this has anything to do with the root of our salvation, with the basis, the ground, the foundation Rather, let's be clear that this section of the catechism from here on in is about thankfulness. Our good works are not the root, but the fruit of our salvation. And even as the fruit of our salvation, they are Christ's work in us and through us. We know that our justification is entirely in Christ. But with sanctification too, we have to be careful. Careful that we don't turn in on ourselves. We realize that this is also part of Christ's work for us. It's part of the package of this rich salvation that He gives. And when we realize that, when our eyes see that, you know what happens? We grow even more thankful. Let's pray. O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise You, the God of our salvation. We thank You for having redeemed us when we were dead in sins and trespasses. Father, we praise You for having chosen us before the foundation of the world to be Yours. Lord Jesus, we praise You for redeeming us with Your blood and renewing us with Your Spirit. We thank You that because of the cross, We need not fear judgment and wrath. Holy Spirit, we worship You for Your work in our lives, for creating faith and for sustaining us in our new life. O Lord God, help us so that we would more and more be conformed to Christ. Please mold us and shape us so that we would show ourselves thankful to You for our redemption, that You would be praised by us each and every day. We pray that Your work in us would assure us of our faith and comfort us also in dark hours. And we also plead that we would be Your instrument, Your instruments to win our neighbors for Christ. Use us as You will for the advance of Your kingdom. And Father, we also pray that none of us would lead an ungrateful and impenitent life. So work in us that we would always repent of our sins and believe the Gospel. Lord God, please continue to shower Your mercy upon us. We pray in Christ our Lord. 
Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.